Hello, welcome back. I'm Eric Grun, and this is These Are the Words. And uh, this is this episode is going to be Carl Gustav Jung's The Red Book, Liber Novus. And uh, we are still in the preface that is written by Sonu Shamdasani. Shamdasani, I think that's that's how I pronounce the name. I'm not sure. Sounds Indian. Um, but let's see where we left off. Uh, we went uh, through a little bit of Liber Novus, Art and the Zurich School, The Collective Experiment. Okay, let's see. Return of the Dead. The Content. We went over the content, the section that's called The Content. A New Spring of Life. Let's see. The way to the self, I think this is where we're going to pick up, the way to the self. Okay, let's see if I can get some a little bit of music. All right, let's see. All right. I put on uh, uh, Skibias, Hildegard von Bingen, Voices of Angels, Voices of Ascension. Oh, let's see this one. That this is called Fire Skibias Hildegard von Bingen. Okay, this is different. All right, let's play this one. Okay, the way to the self. Carl Gustav Jung's uh, The Red Book, Liber Novus. This is the preface. 
The Way to the Self. In 1918, Jung wrote a paper entitled On the Unconscious, where he noted that all of us stood between two worlds, the world of external perception and the world of perception of the unconscious. This distinction depicts his experience at this time. He wrote that Friedrich Schiller had claimed that the approximation of these two worlds was through art. By contrast, Jung argued, I am of the opinion that the union of rational and irrational truth is to be found not so much in art as in the symbol per se. For it is the essence of the symbol to contain both the rational and irrational. Symbols, he maintained, stemmed from the unconscious, and the creation of symbols was the most important function of the unconscious. While the compensatory function of the unconscious was always present, the symbol-creating function was present only when we were willing to recognize it. Here, we see him continuing to eschew viewing his productions as art. It was not art, but symbols, which were of paramount importance here. The recognition and recuperation of this symbol-creating power is portrayed in Liber Novus. It depicts Jung's attempt to understand the psychological nature of symbolism and to view his fantasies symbolically. He concluded that what was unconscious at any given epoch or epoch at any given epoch was only relative and changing. What was required now was the rem the remolding of our views in accordance with the active forces of the unconscious. Thus the task confronting him was one of translating the conceptions gained through his confrontation with the unconscious and expressed in a literary and symbolic manner in Liber Novus into a language that was compatible with the contemporary outlook. The following year he presented a paper in England before the, the Society of Psychical Research of which he was an honorary member on the psychological foundations of the belief in spirits. He differentiated between two situations in which the collective unconscious became active. In the first, it became activated through a crisis as in an individual's life and the collapse of hopes and expectations. In the second, it became activated at times of great social, political, and religious upheaval. At such moments, the factors suppressed the factors suppressed by the prevailing attitudes accumulate in the collective unconscious. Strongly intuitive individuals become aware of these and try to translate them into communicable ideas. If they succeeded in translating the unconscious into a communicable language, this had a redeeming effect. The contents of the unconscious had a disturbing effect. In the first situation, the collective unconscious might replace reality, 
which is pathological. In the second situation, the individual may feel disorientated, but the state is not pathological. This differentiation suggests that Jung viewed his own experience as falling under the second heading, namely, the activation of the collective unconscious due to the general cultural upheaval. Thus, his initial fear of impending insanity in 1913 lay in his failure to realize this distinction. In 1918, he presented a series of seminars to the Psychological Club on his work on typology and was engaged in extensive scholarly research on this subject at this time. He developed and expanded the themes articulated in these papers in 1921 in psychological types. As regards the working over of themes of Liber Novus, the most important section was Chapter 5, The Type Problem in Poetry. The basic issue discussed here was how the problem of opposites could be resolved through the production of the uniting or reconciling symbol. This forms one of the central themes of Liber Novus. Jung presented detailed analysis of the issue of the resolution of the problem of opposites in Hinduism, Taoism, Meister Eckhart, and in present times in the work of Karl Spittler. This chapter also can also be read in terms of a meditation on some of the historical sources that directly informed his conceptions in Liber Novus. It also heralded the introduction of an important method. Rather than directly discussing the, the issue of the reconciliation of opposites in Liber Novus, he sought out historical analogies and commented upon them. In 1921, the quote-unquote self emerged as a psychological concept. Jung defined it as follows. Inasmuch as, in as, as the I is only the center of my field of consciousness, it is not identical with the totality of my psyche, being merely a complex among other complexes. Hence, I discriminate between the I and the self. Since the I is only the subject of my consciousness, while the self is the subject of my totality. Hence, it also includes the unconscious psyche. In this sense, the self would be an ideal greatness, would be an, a greatness, an ideal greatness, which embraces and includes the I. In unconscious fantasy, the self often appears as the superordinated or ideal personality, as Faust is in relation to Goethe and Zarathustra to Nietzsche. He equated the Hindu notion of Brahman slash Atman with the self. At the same time, Jung provided a definition of the soul. 
he argued that the soul possessed qualities that were complementary to the persona, containing those qualities that the conscious attitude lacked. This complementary character of the soul also affected its sexual character, so that a man had a feminine soul, or anima, and a woman had a masculine soul, or animus. This corresponded to the fact that men and women had both masculine and feminine traits. He also noted that the soul gave rise to images that were assumed to be worthless from the rational perspective. There were four ways of using them. The first possibility of making use of them is artistic. If one is in any way gifted in that direction, a second is, philosoph is philosophical speculation. A third is quasi-religious, leading to heresy and the founding of sex. And a fourth way of employing the dynamis of, this, of these images is to squander it in every form of licentiousness of licentiousness. From this perspective, the psychological utilization of these images would represent a fifth way for it, for it to succeed, psychology had to distinguish itself clearly from art, philosophy, and religion. This necessity accounts for Jung's rejection of the alternatives. In the subsequent black books, he continued to elaborate his mythology. The figures developed and transformed into one another. The differentiation of the figures was accompanied by their coalescence as he came to regard them as aspects of underlying components of the personality. On January 5, 1922, he had a conversation with his soul concerning both his vocation and Liber Novus. I feel that I must speak to you. Why do you not let me sleep, as I am tired? I feel that the disturbance comes from, comes from you. What what induces you to keep me awake? Soul, now is no time to sleep, but you should be awake and prepare important matters in nocturnal work. The great work begins. I, what great work? Soul, the work that should now be undertaken. It is a great and difficult work. There is no time to sleep. If you find no time during the day to remain in if there is no time to sleep if you find no time during the day to remain in the work I but I had no idea that something of this kind was taking place soul but you could have told but but you could have told by the fact that I have been disturbing your sleep for a long time you have been too unconscious for a long time now you must go to a higher level of consciousness. I, I am ready. 
What is it? Speak. So, you should listen. To no longer be a Christian is easy. But what next? For more is yet to come. Everything is waiting for you. And you, and you, you remain silent and have nothing to say. But you should speak. Why have you received the revelation? You should not hide it. You concern yourself with the form. Is the form important when when it is a matter of revelation? I. But you are not thinking that I should publish what I have written. That would be a misfortune. And who would understand it? Soul. No. Listen. You should not break up a marriage, namely the marriage with me. No person should supplant me. I want to rule alone. I, so you want to rule? From whence do you take the right for such a presumption? So, this right comes to me because I serve you and your calling. I could just as well say you came first, but above all your calling comes first. I, but what is my calling? So, the new religion and its proclamation. I, oh God, how should I do this? So, do not be of such little faith. No one knows it as you do. There is no one who could say it as well as you could. I, but who knows if you are not lying. So, ask yourself if I am lying. I speak the truth. His soul here pointedly urged him to publish his material, at which he balked. Three days later, his soul informed him that the new religion expresses itself only in the transformation of human relations. Relations do not let themselves be replaced by the deepest knowledge. Moreover, a religion does not consist only in knowledge, but, but at its visible level in a new ordering of human affairs. Moreover, a religion does not consist only in knowledge, but at its visible level in a new ordering of human affairs. Therefore, expect no further knowledge from me. You know everything that is to be known about the manifested revelation, but you do not yet live everything that is to be lived at this time. Jung's eye replied, I can fully understand and accept this. However, it is dark to me. How the knowledge could be transformed into life, you must teach me this. His soul said, There is not much to say about this. It is not as rational as you are inclined to think. The way is symbolic. Thus the task confronting Jung was how to realize and embody what he had learned through his self-investigation into life. During this period, the themes of the psychology of religion and the relation of religion to psychology became increasingly prominent in his work, starting from his seminar in, in Palsiath, in Cornwall in 1923. He attempted to develop a psychology of the religious-making process, 
rather than proclaiming a new prophetic revelation, his interest lay in the psychology of religious experiences. The task was to depict the, tra the translation and transposition. The task was to depict the translation and transposition of the numinous experience of individuals into symbols and eventually into the dogmas and creeds of organized religions. And finally, to study the psychological function of such symbols. For such a psychology of the religion-making process to succeed, it was essential that analytical psychology, while providing an affirmation of the religious attitude, did not succumb to becoming a creed. In 1922, Jung wrote a paper on the relation of analytical psychology to poetic artworks. He differentiated two types of work, the first which sprang entirely from the author's intention and the second which seized the author. Examples of such symbolic works were the second part of Goethe's Faust and Nietzsche's Zarathustra. He held that these works stemmed from the collective unconscious. In such instances, in such instances, the creative process consisted in the unconscious activation of an archetypal image. The archetypes released in us a voice that was stronger than our own. Whoever speaks in primordial images speaks with a thousand voices. He enthralls and overpowers. He transmutes our personal destiny into the destiny of mankind and evokes in us all those beneficent, be, beneficent forces that ever and anon have enabled humanity to find a refuge from every peril and to outlive the longest night. The artist who produced such works educated the spirit of the age and compensated the one-sidedness of the present. In describing the genesis of such symbolic works, Jung seemingly had his own activities in mind. Thus, while Jung refused to regard Liber Novus as art, his reflections on its composition were nevertheless a critical source of his subsequent conceptions and theories of art. The implicit question that this paper raised was whether psychology could now serve this function of educating the spirit of the age and compensating the one-sidedness of the present. From this period onward, he came to conceive of the task of his psychology in precisely such a manner. Publication de deliberations. Okay, uh, let's see. I'm going to skip this part. The Transformation of Psychotherapy. Liber Novus is of critical significance for grasping the emergence of Jung's new model of psychotherapy. In 1912, 
in transformation and symbols of the libido, he considered the presence of mythological fantasies, such as are present in Liber Novus, to be the signs of fan to be the signs of a loosening of the phylogen phylogenetic layers of the, the unconscious and indicative of schizophrenia. Let me read that again. In 1912, in Transformation and Symbols of, of the Libido, he considered the presence of mythological fantasies, such as are present in Liber Novus, to be the signs of a loosening of the psych, uh, phylogenetic layers of the unconscious and indicative of schizophrenia. Through his self-experimentation, he radically revised this position. What he now considered critical was not the presence of any particular content, but the attitude of the individual toward it and, in particular, whether an individual could ac accommodate such material in their worldview. This explains why he commented in his afterword to Liber Novus that to Liber Novus, that to the superficial observer, the work would seem like madness, and could have become so, and it could have become so, if he had failed to contain and comprehend the experiences. In Liber Segundus, chapter fifteen, he presents a critique of contemporary psychiatry, highlighting its incapacity to differentiate religious experience or divine madness from psychopathology. If the content of visions or fantasies had no diagnostic value, he held that it was nevertheless critical to view them carefully. Out of his experiences, he developed new conceptions of the aims and methods of psychotherapy. Since its inception at the end of the 19th century, Modern psychotherapy had been primarily concerned with the treatment of functional nervous disorders, or neuroses, as they came to be known. From the time of the First World War onward, Jung reformulated the practice of psychotherapy. No longer solely preoccupied with the treatment of psychopathology, it became a practice to enable the higher development of the individual through fostering the, indiv the individuation process. This was to have far-reaching consequences, not only for the development of analytical psychology, but also for psychotherapy as a whole. To demonstrate the validity of the conceptions that he derived in Liber Novus, Jung attempted to show that the processes depicted within it were not unique and that the conceptions which he developed in it were applicable to others. To study the productions of his patients, he built up an extensive collection of their paintings so that his patients were not separated from their images. He would generally ask them to make copies for him. During this period, he continued to instruct his patients as to how to induce visions in a waking state. In 1926, Christiana Morgan came to Jung for analysis. She had been drawn to his ideas on reading psychological types and turned to him for assistance with her problems, with relationships and her depressions. In a session in 1926, Morgan noted Jung's advice to her on how to produce visions. Well, you see, these are too vague for me to be able to say much about them. They are only the beginning. 
You only use the ret. Uh, let me see. You only use the retina of the eye at first in order to objectify. Then instead of keeping on trying to force the image out, image out, you just want to look in. Now, when you see these images, you want to hold them. Now, when you see these images, you want to hold them and see where they take you. How they change. And you want to try to get into the picture yourself, to become one with the actors. When I first began to do this, I saw landscapes. Then I learned how to put myself into the landscape, and the figures would talk to me, and I would answer them. People said, people said he was an artistic temperament, but it was only that my unconscious was swaying, was swaying me. Now I learned to act its drama as well, as the drama of the outer life, and so nothing can hurt me now. I have written 1,000 pages of material from the unconscious, told the vision of a giant who turned into an egg. He described his own experiments in detail to his patients and instructed them to follow suit. His role was one of supervising them in experimenting with their own stream of images. Morgan noted Jung saying, Now I feel as though I ought to say something to you about these fantasies. The fantasies now seem to be rather thin and full of repetitions of the same motives. There isn't enough fire and heat in them. They ought to be more burning. You must be in them more. That is, you must be your own conscious critical self in them, imposing your own judgments and criticisms. I can explain what I mean by telling you of my own experience. I was writing in my book and suddenly saw a man standing watch, standing watch over my shoulder. One of the gold dots from my book flew up and hit him in the eye. He asked me if I would take it out. I said, no. Not unless he told me who he was. He said he wouldn't. You see, I knew that. If I had done what he asked, then he would have sunk into the unconscious, and I would have missed the point of it. In other words, why he had appeared from the unconscious at all. Finally, he told me that he would tell me the meaning of certain hieroglyphs which I had had a few days previous. This he, this he did, and I took the thing out of his eye, and he vanished. Jung went, went so far as to suggest that his patients prepare their own red books. Morgan recalled him saying, I should advise you to put it all down as beautifully as you can in some beautifully bound book. It will seem as if you were making the visions banal. But then you need to do that. Then you are freed from the power of them. If you do that with if you do that with these eyes, for instance, they will cease to draw you. You should never try to make the visions come again. 
think of it in your imagination and try to paint it. Then, when these things are in some precious book, you can go to the book and turn over the pages, and for you it will be your church, your cathedral, the silent places of your spirit, where you will find renewal. If anyone tells you that is that it, it is morbid or neurotic, and you listen to them, then you will lose your soul, for in that book is your soul. In, in a letter to J.A. Gilbert in 1929, he commented on his procedure. I found sometimes that it is of great help in handling such a case to encourage them to express their, their peculiar contents either in the forms of writing or of drawing and painting. There are so many incomprehensible intuitions in such cases, fantasy fragments that rise from the unconscious, for which there is almost no suitable language. I let my patients find their own symbolic expressions, their mythology. Philemon's Sanctuary In the 1920s, Jung, Jung's interest increasingly shifted from the transcription of Liber Novus and the elaboration of his mythology in the Black Books to working on his tower in Bollingen. In 1920, he purchased some land on the upper shores of Lake Zurich in Bollingen. Prior to this, he and his family sometimes spent holidays camping around Lake Zurich. He felt the need to represent his innermost thoughts in stone and to build a completely primitive dwelling. Words and paper, however, did not seem real enough to me. Something more was needed. He had to make a confession in stone. The tower was a representation of individuation. Over the years, he painted murals and made carvings on the walls. The tower may be regarded as a three-dimensional continuation of Liber Novus. It's Liber Cart Quartus, Liber Quartus. At the end of Liber Segundus, uh, Jung wrote, I must catch up with a piece of the Middle Ages within myself. We have only finished the Middle Ages of others. I must begin early in that period when the hermits died out. Significantly, the tower was deliberately built as a structure from the Middle Ages with no modern amenities. The tower was an ongoing evolving work. He carved this inscription on its wall, Philemonis Phile, uh, uh, Sancrum, Fausti Poenet, uh, Poenitentia, po, Poenitentia, Philemon's Shrine Faust's Repentance. One of the murals in the tower is a portrait of Philemon. On, a on April 6, 1929, Jung wrote to Richard Willem, Why are there no worldly cloisters for men who should live outside the... 
Why are there no worldly cloisters for men who should live outside the times? That's a, I, that's a good question. I've asked that question before. Because uh, people like Jung don't necessarily... They don't necessarily not fit in with a religious organization or a religious uh, cloister or outfit, like a, a monastery, but they don't necessarily, they, they don't really necessarily fit in with a religious organization. So, uh, well, what else would he call it besides worldly? Why are there no worldly cloisters to, for men who should live outside the times? On January 9th, 1923, Jung's mother died. On December 23rd, 24th, December 1923, he had the following dream. I am on military service, marching with a battalion in a wood by... Ossingen, I come across excavations at a crossroads. I meter high stone figure, a, a, a one meter high stone figure of a frog or a toad with a head. Behind this sits a boy with a toad's head. Then the bust of a man with an anchor hammered into the region of his heart. Roman, a second bust from around 1640, the same motif. Then mummified corpses. Finally, there comes a, a barouche in the style of the 17th century. In it sits someone who is dead, but still alive. She turns her head. When I address her as Miss... I am aware that Miss is a title of nobility. A few years later, he grasped the significance of this dream. He noted on December 4, 4 he noted on December 4, 1926, only now do I see for that the dream of 23rd, 24th December, 1923, means the death of the anima. She does not know that she is dead. This coincides with the death of my mother. Since the death of my mother, the A anima has fallen silent, meaningful. A few years later, he had a few further dialogues with his soul, but his confrontation with the anima had effectively reached a closure at this point. On January 2nd, 1927, he had a dream. He had a dream set in Liverpool. Several young Swiss and I are down by the docks in Liverpool. It is a dark, rainy night with smoke and clouds. We walk up to the upper part of town which lies on a plateau we come to a small circular lake in a centrally located garden 
In the middle of this there is an island. The men speak of a Swiss who lives here in such a sooty, dark, dirty city. But I see that on the island stands a magnolia tree covered with red flowers, illuminated by an, by an eternal sun, and think, now I know why this Swiss fellow lives here. He apparently also knows why. I see a city mat, map uh, in brackets plate. Jung then painted a mandala based upon this map. He attached great significance to this dream, commenting later, This dream represented my situation at the time. I can still see the grayish-yellowish raincoats glistening with the wetness of the rain. Everything was extremely unpleasant, black and opaque, just as I felt then. But I had had a vision of unearthly beauty, and that was why I was able to live at all. I saw that that here the goal had been reached. One could not go beyond the center. The center is the goal, and everything is directed toward the cent that center. Through this dream, I understood that the self is the principle and archetype of orientation and meaning. Jung added that he himself was the one Swiss. The I was not the self, but from there one could see the divine miracle. The small light resembled the great light. Henceforth, he stopped painting mandalas. The dream had expressed the unconscious developmental process, which was not linear, and he found it completely satisfying. He felt utterly alone at that time, preoccupied with something great, that others didn't understand. In the dream, only he saw the tree. In the dream, only he saw the tree. While they stood in the darkness, the tree appeared radiantly. Had he not had a, such a vision, his life would have lost meaning. The realization was that the self is the goal of individuation and that the process of individu individuation is not linear, but consisted uh, in a but consisted in a circumambulation of the self. This realization gave him strength, for otherwise the experience would have driven him or those around him crazy. He felt that the mandala drawings showed him the self in its saving function, and that this was his salvation. The task now was one of consolidating these insights into his life and science. In, in his 1926 revision of the psychology of the unconscious processes, he highlighted the significance of the midlife transition. He argued that the first half of life could be characterized as the natural phase in which the prime aim was establishing, establishing one in the he argued that the first half of life could be characterized as the natural phase in which the prime aim was establishing oneself in the world, gaining an income and raising a family.
The second half of life could be characterized as the cultural phase, which involved a reevaluation of earlier values. The goal in this period was one of the of conserving previous values together with the recognition of their opposites. This meant that individuals had to develop the undeveloped and neglected aspects of their personality. The individuation process was now conceived as the general pattern of human development. He argued that there was a lack of guidance for this transition in contemporary society, and he saw his psychology as filling this, this lacuna. Outside of analytical psychology, Jung's formulations have had an impact on the field of adult development psych developmental psychology. Clearly, his crisis experience formed the template for this conception of the requirements of the two halves of life. Libernovos depicts Jung's reappraisal of his previous values and his attempt to develop the neglected aspects of his personality. Thus, it formed the basis of his understanding of how the midlife transition could be successfully navigated. In 1928, he published a small book, The Relations Between the I and the Unconscious, which was an expansion of his 1916 paper, The Structure of the Unconscious. Here, he expanded upon the interior drama of the transformation process, adding a section dealing in detail with the process of individuation. He noted that after one had dealt with the fantasies from the personal sphere, one met with fantasies from the impersonal sphere. These were not simply arbitrary, but converged upon a goal. Hence, these later fantasies could be described as processes of initiation, which provided their nearest analogy. For this process to take place, active participation was required. When the conscious mind participates at each stage of the process, then the next image or level that has been won and purpose and purpose pur and purposiveness develops and purposiveness develops after the assimilation of the personal unconscious the differentiation of the persona and the overcoming of the state of god likeness the next stage that followed was the integration of the anima for men and the and the animus for women Jung argued that just as it was essential for a man to distinguish between what he was and how he appeared to others, it was equally essential to become conscious of his invisible relations to the unconscious, and hence to differentiate himself from the anima. He noted that when the anima was unconscious, it was projected. For a child, the first bearer of the soul image was the mother, and thereafter the, wo the women who aroused a man's feelings. One needed to objectify the anima 
and to pose questions to her by the method of inner dialogue or active imagination. Everyone he claimed had this ability to hold dialogues with him or herself. Active imagination would thus be one of active imagination would thus be one form of inner dialogue, a type of dramatized thinking. It was critical to, to disidentify from the thoughts that arose and to overcome the assumption that one had produced one, them oneself. What was most essential was not interpreting or understanding the fantasies, but experiencing them. This represented a shift from his emphasis on creative formulation and understanding in his paper on the transcendent function. He argued that one should treat the fantasies completely literally while one was engaged in them, but symbolically when one interpreted them. He argued that one should treat the fantasies completely literally while one was engaged in them, but symbolically when one interpreted them. This was a direct description of Jung's procedure in the Black Books. The task of such discussions was to objectify the effects of the anima and to become conscious of the contents that underlay these, thereby integrating these into consciousness. When one had become familiar with the unconscious processes reflected in the anima, the anima, had, the anima then became a function of the relationship between consciousness and the unconscious, as opposed to an autonomous complex. Again, this process of the integration of the anima was the subject of Liber Novus and the Black Books. It also highlights the fact that the fantasies in Liber Novus should be read symbolically and not literally. To take statements from them out of context and to cite them literally would represent a serious misunderstanding. Jung noted that this process had three effects. The first effect is that the range of consciousness is increased by the inclusion of a great number and variety of unconscious contents. The second is a gradual, dimin is a gradual diminution of the dominating influence of the unconscious. The third is an alteration in the personality. After one had achieved the integration of the anima, one was confronted with another figure, namely the mana personality. Jung argued that when the anima lost her mana or power, the man who assimilated it must have acquired this and so became a mana personality, a being of superior will and wisdom. However, this figure was a dominant of the collective unconscious, the recognized archetype of the powerful man in the form of hero, chief, magician, medicine man, and saint, the lord of men and spirits, the friend of gods. Thus integrating the anima and attaining her power, one inevitably identified with the figure of the magician, and one faced the task of differentiating oneself from this. He added that for women, the corresponding figure was that of the Great Mother, 
if one gave up the claim to victory over the anima, if one gave up the claim to victory over the anima, possession by the figure of the magician ceased, and one realized that the mana truly be belonged to the midpoint of the personality, namely the self. If one gave up the claim to victory over the anima, possession by the Possession by the figure of the magician ceased. And one realized that the mana truly belonged to the midpoint of the personality, namely the self. The assimilation of the contents of the mana personality led to the self. Jung's description of the encounter with the mana personality both the identification and subsequent disidentification with it corresponds to his encounter with Philemon in Liber Novus. Of the self, Jung wrote, it might as well be called God in us. God in us. The beginnings of our whole psychic life seem to be inextricably rooted to this point and all our highest and deepest purposes seem to be striving toward it. Jung's description of the self conveys the significance of his realization following his Liverpool dream. The self could be characterized as a kind of compensation for the conflict between inner and outer the self is also the goal of life because it is the most complete expression of that fateful combination we call individuality, with the experiencing of the self as something irrational, as an indefinable being to which the I is neither opposed nor subjective, but in a relation of dependence and around which it revolves very much as the earth revolves about the sun, then the goal of individuation has been reached. Okay, this is where I'm going to leave you guys. The next section is called The Confrontation with the World. I'm not sure if I'm going to read that. Let's look and see. The Comparative Study of the Individuation Process. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll skip The Confrontation with the World. It's a short section, so... I'll read the comparative study of the individuation process.
And then, yeah, next episode for, uh, I, I'm just going to continue with the Red Book. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue with the Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future. If you want to get that book, it's called Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future by Father Seraphim Rose. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Really, 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 really great book. Um, or you can listen to it on Orthodox Reactionary. If anyone wants uh, the link to that, I can just send them the, the link to the Orthodox Reactionary channel on YouTube. And you can listen to Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future for free. Um, so I'm going to continue with the Carl Gustav Jung's the Red Book, Libra Novos, and it looks like the next episode I will probably do tomorrow, God willing, I will, um, I will then, uh, start reading from Liber Primus, which is the beginning section of, uh, Liber Novos, and the, you know, the beginning section of the Red Book, and I'll read this this section before the confrontation with the world and uh, the comparative study of the individuation process in the preface before we get started. So yeah, finally I'm gonna I'm excited to get started. Yay! All right, thank you guys so much for listening, and God bless you. Have a great night.